keep. It's really an interesting word. The New English uh, Dictionary says that keep means that you retain possession of something. I guess you have to have possession of something first before you maintain it. But the Cambridge Dictionary says keep means to continue doing something without stopping. Keep is also a uh, hair loss product for men. (laughs) Keep is a Chinese mobile fitness app. Keep is also a scholarship presentation program at Arizona State University. And the software Google Keep captures, edits, and shares notes on your devices. Keep is is really an interesting word. In fact, it is the key word of the small little book at the back of your New Testament called Jude. The main word is keep. It's used five times, and the book's only 25 verses long. Keep. So what was Jude saying Well, as you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word for keep is the word you'll see on the screen here. It's the word tyrio. It means to guard. It means to attend carefully. It means to maintain in the current state. And then Jude tells us that we have the gospel. We have truth. And Jude said five times... Keep it. Attend to it. Maintain it. Guard it. The last several Sundays, we've been looking at books of the Bible that uh, that I've not preached from on a Sunday morning as your pastor. I've been here 18 years, and, and there are 12 books of the Bible that I've not preached from. So we're looking at some of those, and and we've looked so far at Song of Solomon, and we've looked at Lamentations, we looked at Philemon, we we looked at Ezra last Sunday, we looked at 2 John, and we looked at 3 John. And this morning we're going to look at the little book, 25 verses of Jude. Because Jude tells us some interesting things. Read with me, starting in chapter, or rather, uh, verse 1 through 4, and then starting in verse 17. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept, there's the first keep, for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people. You pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, 
the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep, there's a word again, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained in the flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Well, what does this follower of Jesus tell us I, I want us to look he says a lot to us believers in 2022 letter a on your outline who is talking verses one and two who's who's doing the talking well notice in verse one he says jude a servant of jesus christ and the brother of james that's kind of odd read it again jude Servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Well, Jude is a shortened version of the name Judas. Same Greek word. So evidently, most Bible scholars believe that the writer of this book, his name was Judas, but he did not want to go by Judas because of what Judas Iscariot did. If my name was Judas, I would go by Jude also. And that's what he did. So it's Judas. It's a common name in those biblical days. But he shortened it to Jude. By the way, also Jesus had a brother named Judas. Do you know that? A brother named Judas and a brother named James. We're told that in Matthew 13, 55. Could it be that the writer of this book was Jesus' brother, Jude? Yeah. In fact, most Bible scholars believe it is. This was Jesus' brother. Well, half-brother, they had the same mom, they had different dads. Jesus' dad, of course, was God, and the other brother's dad was Joseph. But he doesn't identify himself as Jesus' brother. He just says a servant. Now, had that been me, and I'm writing a letter, and I want people to read what I'm writing, I would say, Jude, <coughs> brother of Jesus. But he doesn't. You see, folks, he just calls himself a servant of Christ. Because the most important relationship Jude had with his brother was not a blood relationship, it was a spiritual relationship. He didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. 
I mean, you grow up with the Messiah, and you don't believe he's the Messiah. You're a 10-year-old together, and you're a 12-year-old, and you see him as a 16-year-old, and then he's 24, and, and he's around the house. He's, he's a carpenter. And, and, you, and then he says he's the Messiah. You go, no, no, you're, uh, you're my brother. But after the resurrection, his brothers and sisters believed in him. And now he comes to write a letter, and he just simply says, I'm a servant of Christ. And the brother of James. No other New Testament book says it is signed by the brother of an apostle. It's the only one. So he's telling us something. I have all the authority for you to listen to what I'm about to write to you. Because I lived with our Savior growing up. I heard him say more than you did. And I know him very well. So listen. And then he says, To those who are called beloved in God and kept. So here's who he's talking to. He's talking to every single person who's been saved. Every single person who's been called of God, beloved in God, kept in Jesus Christ, whenever you trust Christ as Savior, you get a treasure inside of you. And he says, I'm talking to you if you have that treasure. Most of us in here probably have that treasure. Most of us probably have received Jesus as Savior. Some of you haven't. Some of you online probably haven't. And if you have not come to that place in your life where you have repented of your sins and realized that what Jesus did on the cross was atoning for you and the powerful resurrection on the third day and ascension 40 days later, today is your day. Maybe you've been thinking about it. Maybe you come every Sunday knowing you need to make that decision, but you haven't done it. Today's your day. You need to do that. But for most of us, We've already done that, so we are the called and the beloved and the kept. And here's what he tells us. You, you have a treasure inside of you. Keep it. Guard it. Maintain it. Because living inside of you is God Almighty and his truth. So you need to keep it. So, he says, may mercy, peace, love be multiplied to you. And then he starts writing the letter. Look at letter B on your outline, verses 3 and 4. Why is he talking about truth? Why is he talking about truth? Immediately, as soon as Jude introduces himself, here's who I am, immediately he starts talking about truth. He starts talking about what you have inside of you. And he starts talking about truth. And the reason is, in that culture, they were being threatened, in the culture and in the church, by false teaching. He said, I I've been eager to write to you about our common salvation what we all have in common. I need, to, I need to write to you about that. And he says, we're being threatened. 
Our culture is coming against us here in the, in the first century, and they're teaching false things about Christ. And you need to hang on to what you've got. And even in your church, he says, there, there are people who are sneaking in, and, and they're teaching you false things. Keep your guard up, because you've got a treasure. You don't want to lose it. Maintain it. It's truth. Now, here's what was happening. In that day, outside belief systems were, were threatening Christianity. And then a belief system within the church was threatening the gospel. Boy, that sounds like us, doesn't it? We have all kinds of things coming outside against the Christian faith. You just turn on the news. It doesn't matter the media, right wing or left wing. If, if it's a story about Christianity, it's usually negative. The faith in our culture is being degraded. And people are angry at our faith. The Bible's being ignored. The Bible's being devalued. What we believe the Bible teaches, we're, we're being come against because of it. And that's our culture. We're right where Jude was. And it's even happening inside the church. Because so many churches feel pressure. We want to reach our world for Christ. And if we stand up every Sunday and preach truth and, and preach the word, they don't want to hear it. So we need to be seeker friendly. We need to do those things that's going to draw people in the back doors. And then when we get them in here, we'll tell them the gospel. But we can't tell them everything in here because they won't listen. And so even our day is doing what Jude said. So here's what Jude told them. You need to contend for the faith. What does that mean? Well, the word contend in the, in the, the Greek is only used one time in the entire New Testament. It's right here. It's a compound word. You'll see it on the screen. It, it's the word agonizomai. We get the word agonize over it in English. And then the prefix epi upon, and it literally is a wrestling term. It was a term you heard in the gyms in those days. It's an athletic term. They had, uh, they had events. They had competitions like we had the Olympics. They had the, the, the Isthmian Games on the Isthmus of Corinth. They had wrestling matches, very popular. And so you never heard the word epigonizomai unless you were in the gym. And it means go to the mat. Contend, fight, wrestle, struggle. And you need to prevail. You're in a match. And Jude uses the wrestling term to tell us what we need to do. With our faith. Folks, we're in a wrestling match for the standard. And the world's not giving up. Now, we do it lovingly. We're not obnoxious, 
but we contend. We go to the mat for truth. Do you do that? Somebody says something that goes against what God's told us. You just let it go by. Or do you contend for it? You stand up for it. You know, if you go to an art gallery and there are no armed guards there, you're probably going, I don't guess these paintings are worth very much. And if you have something and you don't contend for it or guard it, how valuable is it? So why do you let your faith be watered down? I read an article a while back by a, an author, a Christian author. He's pretty popular. And he was, he was writing in this story, and he referenced Jude, and, and he was telling about a time that he and his wife went out to eat dinner one night. He said, we were eating, enjoying the evenings, the two of us, and there was a table close to us, and there were two guys sitting there. One of them was a, a cowboy. He was a big guy. He had on uh, boots and jeans and a big hat, and, and they're talking back and forth, and my wife and I are enjoying dinner, and, and we could hear their conversation because it was talking very loud, and he said, the cowboy was just downgrading Jesus over and over and over, and he was saying things of Christ that weren't true. And it was all night. He was talking about Christianity. He was talking about Christ. He was talking about Jesus. Downgrading. And then he got into the resurrection. Talking about how it has been proven the resurrection did not happen. And there, there have been theories that have come out that have debunked what happened. And he's going on and on and on. And, and this, this Christian writer said, we were sitting there. And I thought, I've I got to say something. And so I turned to my wife and I said, honey, I've... I've got to say something. She said, you can, he'll kill you. <laughs> He's big, look at him. And so well, I know I'm going to get one more sip of water and you start praying. <laughs> She's like, another sip of water and my wife's over here praying. I got up and I went to the table and I said, excuse me, um, I I've been listening to your conversation tonight and, 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 and this is not personal and it's nothing against you but what you've been saying about Jesus is inaccurate. You see, I know him. And I've served him for years. And he's nothing like you say. And, and I don't mean any offense. But what you said about the resurrection is not, not right. It's wrong. There were eyewitnesses to it. Those theories have been debunked you talked about. It happened. And all you've said about Christ has been inaccurate. And I just wanted to set the record straight. He said the uh, cowboy kind of sat back, mouth open, and never said a word. I thanked him. We left. He said, I kind of strutted out a little bit. But I, I just couldn't sit by and hear 
what was not right. Can you? Or do you go to the mat for what's right? And, and not being obnoxious, not in a disrespectful way, but standing up for what our culture says is right is wrong. That's what Jude said. Now, what was going on in the church in Jude's day that made him want to write the letter? Well, this is pretty interesting. Some people had come into the church and joined the church who taught some of the things in the Bible were wrong and some of the things about Christ that were wrong. They claimed to be followers of Christ, but they had distorted the gospel. And here's what they said. They said that your moral actions have nothing to do with your faith. Hang on. Let me say that again. They said what you do morally has nothing to do with your faith. Wait a minute, that's what we hear. We hear the same. Oh, you can, you can be a Christian and still live together without being married. I mean, you know, it's a different day. It's a new day. I mean, it costs, you know, it costs cheaper just for two. No, we don't have to have two rents. We can just pay one rent. You can still be a Christian. It doesn't affect you morally. Or you, you can believe in alternative lifestyles and still be a Christian. I mean, you, you can be a homosexual and be a Christian because, I mean, it's, just, it's different today than then. Or you can, you can get drunk and be a Christian. You can believe in abortion and be a Christian. You can watch porn and still be a Christian because it doesn't affect you morally they were saying and Jude got harsh in fact he's the harshest on false teachers anybody in the New Testament except his brother Jesus Matthew 23 and Jude said that is horrible teaching because your morality Yes, it affects your faith, and your faith affects your morality. And here's what Jude said. There's been some people in your church, he didn't mind calling them out, they crept in unnoticed, and they started teaching that. They crept in unnoticed. You know, I've noticed whenever, whenever the devil gets somebody ready to send somebody to, into a church, he, he always does it in the side door. They never, they never walk in the front doors with the sign on it says, Danger, false teacher, name tag. No, no, it's, it's always they come in, they got a great personality, they woo you with their personality, everybody likes them, and we make them a Sunday school teacher. Whether doctrine can be taught. I've seen it happen. Somebody questions their teaching. Oh, why, why that? no, they're such a nice person. Oh, I just love them. They got such a good personality. 
And Jude said there were people coming in that had great personalities that they fell in love with. They just had wrong teaching. Who sent them to that church? Jude said the devil did. Somebody said the devil has his people in every church. Every church. He has plants. Charles Spurgeon said that Satan sends a devil into a church disguised as a great person because he knows one devil inside will do much more damage than a thousand devils outside. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. Happened at Jude's day. Happens in churches today. So he said, no matter who's teaching it, Contend with the faith. What God has placed within you, keep it and hold on to it. Then let her see on your outline what does he tell us to do. Verses 17 to 25, he closes the book. So right after he talked about the false teachers coming in, right after that, he gave about seven or eight illustrations to the church from the Old Testament. One of them about God's people, when they came out of Egypt, they were out in the wilderness, and how some of them didn't believe, and they were false teachers and false believers. And, And then he goes on from there to fallen angels, how they rebelled against God and they became demons. And we're talking about in Ezekiel. And, and then he goes on to talk about other Old Testament illustrations. He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he gave an illustration. It's kind of odd. And the only place you hear of it's right here. <laughs> I don't know what to make of it either. But he said when Moses died, that Michael the archangel and one of the demons had a wrestling match over Moses' body. I don't, I don't know what to make of it either. I'm just telling you what he said. And then he starts talking about Cain back in Genesis. Gives the illustration of the rebellion at Korah and then Balaam's error and how Enoch spoke about all this. And so he gave about seven or eight Old Testament illustrations And then he closed the book by saying, now, church, here's what you need to do. And he gave them two imperatives. An imperative is a command, only two imperatives. And the first imperative isn't until verse 17. And the first imperative, first command you have as a church, he said, is you must remember. Remember what Christ said, there will come false teachers. Remember what Jesus' followers said. Peter, in the last days there will be scoffers. Remember when you hear all these things, it's going to happen. So the first command, he says, is to remember. He says, verse 20, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. And now the second imperative, verse 21, keep. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep. And in the process, how do you treat other people in your church? Well, he says, verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. You're going to have doubters in the church. Be merciful to them. Save others as by snatching them out of the fire. Maybe there are those going the wrong way. You need to to make sure that you 
get them from the error of the wrong way. Then you show, he said, show mercy without fear and hate the garments stained by the flesh. And then he starts to close. Remember and keep. Those are the two commands he gave us. What you have, what you've heard, what you have right here, keep it. Donald Sr. was a um, New Testament professor for a long time at a university in Belgium. In fact, he just died three weeks ago, November the 8th. Long time, well-respected scholar of the Old Testament, New Testament. He said Jude is like a perplexed pastor grabbing his church members by the shoulders and shaking them and saying, there are things around you that are contaminating what you believe. Wake up, see them, and make sure they don't infiltrate you. That's Jude, according to Donald Sr., because he said anything that threatens truth is a mortal enemy to you. And then Jude closes with probably the most beautiful benediction in all the Bible, verse 24. Now, to him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling, keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the well, only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful way to close it. What was he saying? He was saying, church, you keep the faith because Jesus is keeping you. He's got you. So you keep holding on to what he's given you inside. And what he's given you in his word. So brothers and sisters, you cannot lose your salvation. But we can lose our unity. You cannot lose your salvation, but we can lose our grip on truth. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose family members who start listening to the teachings of the world and leave what they believe about this and go to them, and they're no longer here. That can happen. Has happened. So go to the mat. There's a lot at stake. Don't let anything contaminate your standard of truth. Do you know what a kilogram is? A kilogram. Do you know how important a kilogram is? A kilogram is the standard of the unit of mass for the entire metric system. So if the kilogram is off, everything else is off. 
vitally important that the mass of a kilogram stays constant and nothing throws it off. Nothing adds to it, makes it heavier. Nothing makes it lighter. It has to be the exact weight because everything else determines it. So, there must be a standard prototype of a kilogram, right? You're right, there is. It's located just outside of Paris, France. It's about the size of a golf ball. It's a combination of 90% platinum alloy and 10% iridium. And it is called the international prototype of the kilogram. They protect it because they don't want any specks of dust on it to make it heavier or lighter. So it's housed in a vault outside of Paris, France. It's been there since 1889. And in order to keep it uncontaminated and the mass perfect, this little golf ball is housed within three bell-shaped jars kept in a vault, sealed, three keys to get into it, locked behind three doors 60 feet underground. Here's a picture of it. You didn't know what that was on the front of your bulletin today, did you? That's it. If the golf ball's in there, three bell-shaped jars, they're protecting it so the mass stays perfect because everything else depends on it. Once a year, somebody peeks in on it, but they don't open it. They just peek in the door. Yep, still there. (laughs) And they shut it. Every 40 years, they take it out, make sure no specks of dust get on it. They wash it with alcohol, dry it with a special cloth, give it a steam bath, allow it to air dry, and then get a a very expensive, precise instrument, and they reweigh it to ensure that not even a speck of dust has thrown off the mass or thrown off the unit because it is the prototype of the perfect kilogram. It's the standard for everything else. So they guard it and protect it meticulously. And folks, if you do that with a kilogram, why are we not doing it with this? This is the standard of truth. It's just as vital to keep and guard biblical truth with as much care and precision and detail as guarding the kilogram. I would say it's more important than guarding the kilogram. Now let's suppose. Let's suppose somebody digs through the vault and they get through all these doors 60 feet underground outside of Paris, France, and they have like four or five objects that they want to be kilograms, but they're not because they're not the right weight. And they somehow get through those locked doors. They somehow get through the bell jars. They, They finally get it. And in order to make it just like their objects, they start slivering off 
pieces of the kilogram so it'll weigh the same as theirs. What do you have? Truth? No, no. You have falsity. You don't have unity. You have falsehood. So what about those people that take this? It's elevated up here, and you've got all these belief systems down here. And, and if we just kind of lower it and lower it and lower it and lower it and lower it, where it's the same as all of the belief systems, what do you have? Unity? No. You have falsity because they're all false. This is a standard. Guard it, go to the mat for it, make sure nothing contaminates it. Because, brothers and sisters, what you have is precious. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for saving us in Christ. And within us, you have placed something that is valuable. God, may we guard it as closely as they guard the kilogram. Father, I know that there are many contaminants out there trying to tell us that what you've told us is inaccurate. And so I pray today that as believers, Lord, not in, a, not in an ungodly way or an obnoxious way, but may we always stand for what you've told us. And Lord, I want to pray for those today, maybe in this congregation, maybe online, that they've strayed from that and they need to come back to that standard. I want to pray for those in this congregation and online that, that they've never trusted Jesus as Savior. They've never been given that treasure and today is their day for salvation to come to their house. God, may you grant it. In Jesus' name I pray.